Good morning, and I would like to add my congratulations and well done to our seniors. Uh, Joel, who did our mission spotlight, uh, one of the seniors is his son, and I have two seniors this year, one high school and one university, and so well done to our seniors. We are proud of you. We know this has been a difficult and different kind of season for you, but you are learning lessons, hopefully, about life and God that you would have never learned Otherwise, I invite you to take your scriptures and open back up to Psalm 23. Two weeks ago, we looked at this psalm, and this will be the only song, psalm this summer that we do in sort of two parts or, or feature it twice. And we're going to look at it from a different angle this morning. The people of the Old Testament and of Jesus' day understood the relationship between shepherds and sheep, but the significance of that relationship is quickly lost on most of us. Shepherding became more familiar for me when I lived in East Africa. But rather than the serene landscapes of green glass and quaint fields dotted with soft white creatures, we often saw young boys trying to keep their sheep off the highways. And by doing so, rather than a staff, they would take rocks and throw the rocks at the sheep. The sheep often looked run down, gaunt and matted with dirt. Not all shepherds are of the same quality, and therefore not all sheep are treated the same. During this time of separation, or during this stay-at-home, or safer-at-home policy, I want to ask you a question. What have you learned about your shepherd, and what are you learning about your own heart that needs shepherded? We have not gathered as a church for two months That is a first for some of you in your entire life. And even though God has designed us to live together in community as a church, perhaps this is a gift because it provides a rare glimpse for us of whether the church is merely formalistic and traditional or whether it is true evidence of new birth in our heart desiring to gather together with other believers in the true worship of God in spirit and in truth. The churchy schedules, the religious busyness have hopefully been set aside. And we have endeavored not to just fill it back up with constant Zooming and Bible studies. Much like the population of major cities, it has settled down, the pollution has decreased. And as everything settles and the rhythm slows down, what have you learned about your heart And the question is, is it settled because the shepherd of your soul is tending you? Is Jesus, the shepherd of your soul, shepherding your heart? If you were to take every statement in Psalm 23, every phrase, every truth that is contained in Psalm 23, which is probably the most popular, well-known psalm of all 150 psalms. But if you were to take every truth and demonstrate, if you were to run to the Gospels primarily... And demonstrate how Jesus has fulfilled these truths in Psalm 23 for you. Where would you go? What truths would you lean on? What events or teachings or miracles would you draw from to highlight Jesus as your shepherd? Let's look at Psalm 23 phrase by phrase and do that this morning. Look at Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. It's personal. David is saying that the Lord is his shepherd. We would say this from the New Testament perspective. Jesus 
is my shepherd. Is that true of you? And if so, how can you be sure? John Bunyan, in his classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, referenced the scripture text that Steve read for us this morning when Bunyan introduced to us two interesting characters, two men that jump over the wall as Christian is on his way to the celestial city. The first is named Formalist and the second Hypocrisy. And what John Bunyan was doing is showing to us the dangers of empty formalism and blind hypocrisy. He wrote this in The Pilgrim's Progress. He writes, as Christian was troubled, he saw two men come tumbling over the wall on the left hand of the narrow way and they caught up to him. The name of the one was formalist and the name of the other hypocrisy. They caught up to Christian and began talking with him. And Christian asks them, gentlemen, where have you come from and where are you going? Formalist in hypocrisy replied, we were born in the land of vainglory and are going for praise to Mount Zion. To which Christian responds, why didn't you come through the gate which stands at the beginning of the way? And at this point, John Bunyan quotes John 10, our scripture text from this morning, where Jesus teaches that he is the only way and the door into the sheepfold. Christian says, do you not know that it is written that he that comes not in by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber? To which formalist and hypocrisy reply, to go to the gate for entrance was by all our countrymen counted too far out of the way and that their usual way was to make a shortcut of it, to climb over the wall as they had done. Christian responded, but will it not be counted a trespass against the Lord of the city where we are going because you have violated his revealed will? Listen to what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Listen to what Jesus says. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, the picture is difficult because there seems to be a gatekeeper that is not Jesus, even though Jesus says he is the door. But the details in this figure of speech, as John calls it, would have been familiar to John's readers. The picture is that the sheep are in a pen or in a sheep gate probably part of a communal courtyard where several shepherds or families keep their sheep all together at night, where all the families hire a watchman. And that watchman stands guard at the gate, protecting the sheep while they're not out at pasture. Those who are authorized to have access to the sheep would approach the watchman and he would open the gate to them. Anyone interested, anyone who did not have authority to have access to the sheep, who did not own the sheep, the watchman would refuse. Therefore, those people who either wanted to steal the sheep or to harm the sheep would sneak in another way and climb up over the walls. This is what Jesus is saying. The false religious leaders, you'll see this later on in John, who are evil shepherds or who are thieves and robbers, the Pharisees, the scribes, 
are much like the shepherds that Ezekiel calls out in chapter 34 of the prophecy of Ezekiel. The sheep recognize the shepherd's voice. They move towards him. It's as if Jesus is walking up, the gatekeeper opens the gate, and he calls them by name. Only his sheep, not all the sheep, but his sheep. It is said that different shepherds had different noises or different calls for the sheep. Look at verse 4 of John 10. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. Romans 8.16 says this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit this morning that you are His child? Do you hear the shepherd's voice? Have you heard His voice this week through His Word? Do you hear Him calling you, comforting you, exhorting you, rebuking you? Galatians 4.6 says, And because you are sons, because you are children... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Does your heart respond then to the shepherd? Do you cry out to the shepherd? Maybe you're in danger, or maybe you've lost your way, or you're doubting, or you're hurting, or you're questioning. Do you at least cry to Him? The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that at the beginning of Psalm 23, that Jesus is my shepherd? The latter part of verse 1 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a a confession that God will provide everything that we need. I shall not want. So we would say this, in Jesus, I have everything I need. In John chapter 2, Jesus attends a wedding where he turns water into wine. As a matter of fact, John calls this in in verse 11 of John chapter 2, the first of his miraculous signs. He thus revealed his glory, and listen to what it says, just by this very first miracle recorded in John, and his disciples put their faith in him. Would that be enough for you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? One miracle, water to wine. There are six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. And I believe Jesus chose them specifically because what he was demonstrating was not just the transformation of one beverage into another, but he was, he was demonstrating his transformation of cleansing, purification. They were lacking in wine at the wedding feast, but they needed something more. They didn't need wine. They needed something more, and it was something even they did not realize. And what they needed was that Jesus, this person in their presence, could transform their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I shall not want, I will not be in need. The Spirit of God must transform not one liquid into another, but a spiritually dead heart of stone to a spiritually living heart of flesh. Listen to what Ezekiel, we'll go back to Ezekiel again. Ezekiel prophesied this in chapter 36, verse 26. He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What does that look like? When Jesus does that, when he removes a heart of stone and gives to us a completely new heart, what does that look like? The Gospel of John is structured around seven signs or miracles. Eight if you include Jesus' own bodily resurrection from the dead. The water to wine was the first sign. It's a sign of 
Jesus' power to transform things. In John chapter 3 and 4, we're introduced to two different people. The first is a Jewish man. He is accepted in the religious circle. The second is a Samaritan woman who is on the outer fringe socially and morally. What you'll see here is the Lord begins to shepherd both. This is all leading to John chapter 10 where He is the good shepherd where His sheep hear His voice and He calls them by name and they follow Him. And the question is this. Can Jesus be a shepherd both to religious unbelievers, Nicodemus, as well as to moral outcasts? And the answer is yes. Nicodemus, Jewish, a man, Moral, religious, educated, like many of you this morning. He starts by acknowledging that that Jesus is a teacher sent from God. He's religious. He's curious. And it seems like Nicodemus has sensed something. Something missing in his own heart. Perhaps what Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. For the letter kills. The law kills. Legalism kills. Hollow religion kills. Conservative Christianity by itself kills. But the Spirit gives life. Jesus tells him twice. He's looking at this moral, religious, Jewish man. And He says this twice. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus illustrates the truth that even religious people need to be transformed like water wine. In chapter 4, the woman at the well, she's half Jewish, half Gentile. Jesus' own disciples didn't even want to go through Samaria. She's immoral. She's quasi-religious. Perhaps like some of you this morning. Jesus interacts differently with her. Rather than looking straight at her and saying, you must be born again, He says to her, go call your husband. And that moves into an uncomfortable dialogue to which she quickly changes the subject to worship, which is where Jesus wanted the conversation to go anyway. The Samaritan woman illustrates the truth that no matter who we are, how far we've gone, we can ask Jesus for living water and it will be given, even if we are scarred and overwhelmed by a life of sin. So to Nicodemus, you need to be born all over again. Your status and your religion are not enough. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, and I can do that. I can give you new birth. And to the woman at the well, he says, you're thirsty. I've already already exposed your thirst by telling you to go call your husband, of which you've had several, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. You are thirsty. And your thirst is on a level deeper than any well in the world. And he looks at her, and in essence, he is saying, "And and I have that living water that you can't reach. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I will be in no need because Jesus Jesus satisfies both religious, moral people by new birth and by quasi-religious, immoral people by living water. He transforms both just like He transformed water to wine. Look at verse 2. Psalm 23, verse 2. Jesus satisfies me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. These are two images, two sort of separate images, but both communicate one big idea. And that big idea is satisfaction, safety. Sheep don't 
lie down in green pastures unless they're safe, unless they're content. Sheep don't drink from rough, troubled water, so the shepherd is leading them by still waters from which they can drink and be satisfied with. There's only one miracle that is recorded by all four Gospel writers. It is designed that whether you read John or Matthew or Luke or Mark, in any of the readings of those Gospels, you will always confront this miracle. That is not true of any other miracle in the Gospels. But this one is recorded in all four Gospels. It is the feeding of the 5,000. The meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 is given in John through his bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. This sign, one of John's seven signs that his gospel is structured around, answers a new question. And the question is this. How is the transformation like water to wine or new birth, Nicodemus, or living water, the woman at the well, how is it given? How do we take it? How do we receive it? Jesus said this in John 6, verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now remember that that statement struck the disciples sideways as well. What Jesus is saying, though, is it needs to be taken personally and internalized. Matthew's record of the feeding of the 5000 is found in chapter 14. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. So it's desolate and it's dark. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So right before Jesus does this miracle that's recorded in every gospel, he is also teaching the disciples something about himself. Something they had not learned yet, and that is this. They need to learn that Jesus, even in a desolate, dark place, is enough. He satisfies. Verse 17. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Here's this picture of he makes me lie down in green pastures. But it's desolate right now. And it's dark, but Jesus is about to make them green and lush. Jesus makes them lie down, sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Listen to verse 20, Matthew chapter 14. And they all ate and were satisfied. Do you know Jesus can satisfy physically and spiritually even if you are in a desolate place in the darkness? And they took up the twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is a huge group of people. And all were satisfied. This eating, this miracle presses home the truth that Jesus sacrificed, that he will provide for them must be personally taken and internalized. And here's the good news. There is plenty for everyone, so much so there's even leftover. You see this pictured by the disciples gathering up the leftovers. John 10, verse 11, Jesus said this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for 
the sheep. He repeats that again in verse 15 of John chapter 10. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. That is how he feeds. He is the bread of heaven who himself feeds, saves, and sustains, satisfies his people. But it can only be imparted that satisfaction as the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at Psalm 23, verse 3. He restores my soul. We would say this, Jesus restores my soul. Jesus knows this life is difficult, dangerous. He knows we sin. He is a high priest, is sympathetic because he was, a, he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Jesus understands. He remembers that we are frail, that we are made of dust. He understands that we sin. And though we sin, He forgives and, here's the the beautiful word picture, restores. In Psalm 23, verse 3, the word for restores is a Hebrew word that means simply to turn or to return or to turn back. David captures this in one of his beautiful penitential psalms in Psalm 51, verse 12. This is after he confesses to the Lord, after he speaks the truth that God already knew and confesses it to God, he says this, In Psalm 51, verse 12, restore, there's the word, turn back, help me return, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's what repentance is. It's a turning back. It is a return. Just like all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, all four Gospels also record Peter's failure. In Mark, 15, 50, in Mark 14, 54, Scripture records this, that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. That was the natural place to be on a cold night in Jerusalem, by the fire. In verse 66, it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Peter feels cornered. He feels trapped. So he moves towards the exit gate to escape. It says, and he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl, the same girl who asked him the first time, saw him and began again to say to the bystanders. Now she's not just answering, asking him one-on-one, but she's actually including others, so the pressure is increasing. This man is one of them. But again, Peter denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. In Mark chapter 14, verse 72, we read, And immediately the the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And I'm not sure where Peter went that night. I don't know if he went back to the garden where Jesus had been arrested or if he went back to the upper room or into some desolate alleyway on the streets of Jerusalem. But I do know this. Peter remembered that he was explicitly warned that he would fail 
to which Peter protested, and the details of how and when he would fail exactly, that that night, before the rooster crowed twice, he would deny Jesus three times. What is beautiful is towards the end of John, we are given in detail Peter's restoration. Of course, he's there. He hasn't seen the risen Christ yet. He's with six other men. That Their names are given in John chapter 21, 1-3. Peter finally says, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. So they're out all night in the boat and they caught nothing. Similar to a miracle early on in Jesus' life with the disciples. In verse 4, it says this, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? Of course, he knows the answer to that. They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. A carpenter telling seasoned fishermen where to find fish. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who's recording this particular record, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Peter swimming, going to his Lord. Remember? The Lord is my shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They know me. They got out on the land. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, and I love just the simplicity of the setting of when Jesus is about to restore Peter. He restores my soul. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. In John 21, verse 15, read what happens. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, now remember, this is happening around a morning fire, after breakfast, in front of six other men, Simon, son of Jonah, Jonah, do you love me more than these? I remember what Jesus had warned Peter. You're going to deny me. And what did Peter say? No, though everyone else denies you, I will not. So I don't think Jesus is talking about fishing or the fish or food. He's saying, do you love me more than these other disciples? Peter said to him in Mark 14, even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. The great shepherd now telling Peter, the under shepherd, to do what he is doing. He does this three times. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And there's a play on the words love. Now he uses Peter's weaker word, not agape love, but are you fond of me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, and I love this, Lord, you know everything. See, before Peter said, though all deny you, I will not fall away. Now you can sense this growing humility. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter had failed publicly with three denials. Jesus is now restoring Peter publicly with three affirmations of love. Why? Because the other disciples had to follow Peter. Jesus is graciously granting Peter repentance, a turning back, a return, a restoration, even after public failure. Three times, you know, you know, Jesus. Jesus, you know all things. Three times our Lord allows Peter to honestly say, you know that I love you. I don't know where you're at this morning, but repentance is a gift of God. And sometimes sheep like Peter stray and they get into trouble. But He restores our soul. He draws us back and He restores us. Psalm 23, verse 3, He restores my soul. Jesus restores my soul. Look at the second part of verse 3 of Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Paths of righteousness are right ways. Direct paths that bring the sheep to the proper, the right destination. For His name's sake, He leads in such a way that exalts and confirms His good character. And here's what we need, to, we need to accept and believe. The good shepherd is always leading somewhere good, even if it goes through the valley of the shadow of death, even if it goes through dangerous places. Towards the end of the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, we read this in verse 66. After he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you do not have eternal life, it says that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They no longer followed him. They were temporary followers. They were casually interested. So Jesus turns to the twelve after this mass exodus of followers. He turns to his own twelve and he says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you know that right paths are often narrow paths? Right paths are often unpopular paths or lonely paths. And when it seems that way, keep following Jesus. Keep following His voice, for He is leading towards abundant life and paradise. Jesus said this in Matthew 7:14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. He says in John 14 that he is the way, the truth and the life. Jesus leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So don't lose sight of where this path is going. The good shepherd always leads to places that are good. Look at verse 4, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 15. He said this, beginning in verse 3. So he told them this parable. 
He's telling this to the scribes and the Pharisees. This isn't, he's not just encouraging the disciples to shepherd like this. He's actually rebuking and exposing false religious leaders. He tells them this parable in Luke 15. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. See, those people understood the relationship between shepherds and sheep. And it seems strange that a shepherd would leave 99, but those sheep are safe. He's not compromising 99 to go save the one. Rather, he is keeping them safe and seeking the one that is, in, that is in great need and danger. Look at Luke 15, verse 1. This is the context, the larger context. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear Him. Which doesn't seem like it should be a problem, but it is to false religious people. So in verse 2 it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then he gives the illustration of the shepherd seeking this one lost sheep. Jesus says he came to seek and to save the lost. And I love what he says. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yes, Jesus came to seek and save us, the lost, initially, through new birth, through transformation. But do you know He also will leave the other sheep and seek and pursue us when we have gotten ourselves into trouble and into danger? He is a very present help in trouble. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The psalm now finishes with a picture of a banquet. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What we're given here is the picture of a powerful and generous host. The anointed head, the overflowing cup are two images associated with blessing. If you go to Revelation chapter 19, and here we're going to depart from the Gospels, but we're still going to see Jesus. In Revelation 19, there is the anticipation of a marriage and a wedding feast, or we would say a banquet. And it's a banquet that has not happened yet. In Revelation 19, verse 6, we read, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Remember, He is both a sheep and a shepherd. And his bride, his sheep, his bride, his church, has made herself ready. 
The voice in Revelation 19, verse 6, is not concerned with the past or even with the present, but with the future, the marriage of the Lamb. This is what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, this is when they were asking John if he's the Messiah, and he's simply saying the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, John, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus explained that his disciples were not fasting in his presence because he, the bridegroom, was with them. He also told parables about the kingdom of heaven being like a wedding feast. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. Or about being ready for his return, his second coming as a bridegroom. Matthew chapter 25, 1 to 13. So this reference to the marriage of the Lamb in Revelation 19, 7 points to something future. The realization, or we would say the consummation or the fulfillment of the new covenant. The very thing he was showing to us through picture and image and miracle throughout the Gospels. And blessed are those who are invited to this banquet. So who's invited? I mean, we have this picture of a banquet in Psalm 23, verses 5 to 6. Listen to Revelation 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, the angel's now saying to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed is a certain group of people. Why? Because those attending this banquet have finally reached the destination where the Good Shepherd has been leading all along to a banquet. You know, the book of Revelation was probably read aloud in early Christian worship to those churches and other churches like it that John had mentioned. Those early congregations would have heard words such as Revelation 2 verse 10 about suffering and tribulation and imprisonment and even martyrdom. But because they are invited to a future banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are blessed. So in the brutal days of persecution, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it was vital for the church, for believers, for, for Jesus' sheep to know this, that they were the ones that are blessed, not their persecutors. This is the lesson. Jesus is enough. Even in the face of discomfort, He is enough. In the face of danger, He is enough. In the face of imprisonment, He is enough. Even in the face of death, Psalm 23, Jesus is enough. And sometimes He will put us through difficulty to show His servants and those watching that when we rejoice and people take away our rights and our freedoms and our health and our securities, that people can still see that Jesus is enough. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10. John 10, verse 10. The same chapter where He says He is the Good Shepherd. He said the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Listen to this next phrase. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Abundant life. How? Next verse. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, and I hope you can say this this morning, if he is your shepherd, you can say this this morning. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to invite our music team forward. As they get into place, I want to read to you another passage where Jesus is speaking. He says this in John chapter 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. I love Thomas. Listen to what Thomas says. No, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you are going. So how can we know the way? And I love Jesus' response to Thomas. Jesus told him, and you can just picture it. He's looking at Thomas who just straightforwardly said, no, we don't know where you're going. He looks at Thomas. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is my good shepherd. I am in need of nothing because He can transform water to wine and He can transform a sinful heart to be totally born again and be given a new heart. Jesus is the only shepherd that can bring you out of the valley of the literal shadow of death into a literal eternal life of delight. Final verse, Revelation 7, verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And I love this. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The good shepherd is always leading somewhere good. Is He your shepherd this morning? Is He your good shepherd? If not, call out to Him. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin and to save you. Let's pray.